What if you changed the way you lived and began to embrace the questions in your life? What if you went from the fix-it mode that you might live in, that I live in, the fix-it mode to the interrogative? What if you move from wanting to live a safe life where you have all the answers in a row and move toward a good life that takes you where the questions will lead you? That's what our guest says is going to push us toward today at the Radio Backyard Fence. He's going to help us embrace the questions and let them do a good work in us because he believes that questions can lead you deeper in discipleship in following Jesus. He says we need not fear questions. A believer can rush headlong into them and find find it that it's better on the other side by doing it. There's a whole lot to unpack about questions and faith. Matthew Lee Anderson is going to help us do that. Dr. Matt, so if questions threaten you or maybe you just, you don't want to miss the conversation if there's somebody in your life that is bringing up questions that you can't answer. Let me thank our teammates behind the scenes. Ryan McConaughey is doing all things technical. Trish is our producer. Gabby D will be answering your calls. Thank you, friends and partners of this program. I have one more week to encourage you to reach out to support us. We have a fantastic practical help if clutter is clobbering you. Dana White wrote Organizing for the Rest of Us. I got it right here, more than 200 pages. She was frustrated, and she knew she couldn't color code her sock sock drawer, (laughs) but she thought there's got to be a way to handle this clutter. And in the book, she tells the secrets, the sustainable strategies, meaning you take these steps and you will see a significant decrease in clutter. Try it out. Give a gift of any size to Chris Fabry Live in the next week. Do it today. Don't put it off because you'll get in the clutter. Uh, you may be saying, I never thought I would support Chris Fabry Live. Do it and I'll send you organizing for the rest of us. Call 866-95-FABRY, 866-953-2279 or go to chrisfabrylive.org and you can scroll down and see how to be a friend or partner right there. ChrisFabryLive.org. Dr. Matthew Lee Anderson, or Matt, is an assistant professor in Baylor University's Honors College and the associate director of Baylor in Washington. He holds a doctor of philosophy in Christian ethics from Oxford and is a perpetual member of Biola University's Tory Honors College. Now, that means if he's a perpetual member, it's kind of like you get in a revolving door and you can't get out again. He just goes around and around. I don't think that's what it means, but I'll ask him. He founded Mere Orthodoxy. He co-hosts Mere Fidelity, a podcast on faith, theology, and ethics. He lives in Waco, Texas. How in the world does that? He enjoys playing the piano and beating fourth graders at basketball. <laughs> and I asked him about that. And I'm, we're not going to get into that. Matt, welcome to the program. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. How how does the Waco thing and the Biola thing and the and the Oxford thing and the Washington how does that all fit together? I don't get it. Yeah, it fits together sequentially for the most part. So director of Baylor in Washington, we have a DC program. So I'm an assistant director for that. So we have send out students to DC. Um, I finished my doctorate at Oxford 
uh, in 2015, I think. And the perpetual member of Tory Honors College, Tory Honors is a terrific program out of Biola, just a great undergrad degree. And that's where I did my program. And it's a very funny program. They call the alumni perpetual members. We don't <laughs> leave the program. We stay in the program perpetually. It's not quite a revolving door, as you said, but I kind of like to think of it that way. I really love them out there. It's, it's a great place. It's it's like being in uh, Star Trek, but never getting beamed up, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. So you know, it's my it's my nod to my undergraduate education, which I I think is one of the best that money could buy. Did you know in high school or when you were younger that that's what you wanted? Do you wanted to think for a living? No, I my older brother is the smart one in the family. So I tried to differentiate myself by being the athletic one and that was going nowhere fast. So I decided I decided that I wanted to do intellectual work as an undergraduate. And it was largely my experience at Tory, which was an all discussion program. So I spent roughly a thousand hours as an undergraduate just reading texts and arguing about those texts with my peers and with a professor, asking them questions, having them ask me questions. And there was something about that experience that really definitively shaped how I see the world. And it was during that time that I discerned. I had thought about going into the pastorate when I was in high school. I thought I might want to be a youth pastor. And you know, in college, I realized, no, I actually really do love thinking at levels that uh, I'd like to get more training in. So that yeah. that was really the time when it settled for me. So college then was you walking in after having read stuff and everybody sits around and there's there's a leader, there's a professor there, but most of the, the uh, classroom is taken up with asking questions and trying to come to what the truth is. Yeah, that's right. You know, we, we would spend three hours at a time, three hour conversations, and th the faculty member would run them in different ways, of course. But their job was to ask us questions, to poke and prod how we saw the world and how we read these texts. And for us all, everyone in the room, to subordinate ourselves to the text and to try to understand what the text was saying, and then try to discern whether what the text was saying was right or wrong, whether it was true or false. So it was a lot of, a lot of hours in verbal processing, you know, after having read a text, working through ideas, asking questions of each other. It's, it, it, there's no experience quite like it. Well, and I'm thinking in our day and age with social media, such as it is, to be in a class where you're not on your phone, you're not doing this mm. th through Zoom, you're feeling the energy of the other people that are around you. And if they're bristling, you sense that and you have to change mm -hmm. the tone. And so there's there's a lot being taught with just asking those questions, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you realize that asking questions and conversing together, it's it's a something that you do with your whole person, your whole body. You know, you're your body posture, it matters for how your question comes across, whether you're smiling or not. Like these, like yes. it's communication. And so I, I spent a lot of time learning how to communicate with people orally, which is a great skill to have. It's one of the best skills you can have in this world. However, however, a lot of us in the church look at the questions as 
I'm getting to the end, an end in itself. I'm looking for the zinger. I'm looking for, if I ask this question and I get this answer, then I go to this question and that question. Or if I get a different answer to that, then I go to this question, this question. So it's all very much a quid pro quo on the questions that we, and we almost don't even have to listen to the answer. We just got to figure out what the next question is going to be if we're going to have an apologetic that works and that gets, that zings people. And it sounds like that's not what you're talking about. No, it was nothing like that. And if anything, we wanted to find questions that seemed so challenging and so interesting as questions that we could think about them over the course of a three-hour conversation and then beyond. You know, I I did a class where we just read Plato's Symposium, one of Plato's texts. Plato is this ancient philosopher. He writes this text, the Symposium, and there's a character in it named Alcibiades. And I spent basically an entire semester uh, reading this text, trying to understand Alcibiades' role in this text and what we should do with an Alcibiades-like figure. One question, multiple conversations, many hours, 30 hours, probably more than that over the course of the semester. Because it, like, if you understand the text and you see like how things working, that question is so provocative and so hard to answer that you can wonder about it for a very long time. And those are, those are what, that's what good questions can do for us. They cause us to wonder about the world, to gaze at the world, to be patiently behold the world around us, to just think and contemplate the world and to, in one sense, just look at it, attend to it, see things that we wouldn't see otherwise because we have a question that is prompting that is driving us to look at the world. Those are the sort of questions that I love to ask. The book, I've told Matt already that this is going to be a hard sell for many Christians because we want the answers. We we don't want to have to think. We want, and, and that's part of what I want to talk with you about in this hour— we don't want to be have to think for ourselves. We'll just read what so and so said about this, and just and what you are doing is calling us into question. As as a matter of fact, that's the title of the book. It's our featured resource today, called into questions, cultivating the love of learning within the life of faith. And it's not here are the ten answers you need to use with your non Christian friends, or if your friend is asking this answer. This is teaching not how to uh, question others so that they become Christians. This is teaching us how to live in the middle of the questions. And after the foreword, Matt says, Asking questions with Plato convinced me that Christianity is true. So I want to ask him, what happened? You'll hear the answer to that straight ahead. Go to the website, chrisfabrylive.org. Going through Matt's book earlier, I I had this feeling that um, Jack Nicholson was on the stand and I was watching A Few Good Men and he was yelling, you can't handle the truth, because I wonder if that could be said of us as Christians, not you can't handle the truth, but you can't handle the questions. (laughs) Called into questions, cultivating the love of learning within the life of faith is written by Dr. Matthew Lee Anderson. 
And I'm going to use that of right after the foreword, his beginning sentence is, asking questions with Plato convinced me that Christianity is true. So take me to the early morning hours on that Monday morning a long time ago. Part of that seminar, actually, that I did on Plato's Symposium, and we did a very intense reading experience, discussion experience, where we spent basically 30 hours over the course of a weekend thinking about this text. And, you know, the text is, it raises a lot of very fundamental questions about the world. Uh, If there was a God, would they become human? Uh, Is the body good? How can the body and the soul be reconciled? If there's one person, are they valuable? Or should we just like overwhelm the value of the one for the sake of the many? How do you relate the one person with the good of the community? The, all, the, all those questions come up through this text and Plato asks them in a way in which few other thinkers are capable of doing. And we, you know, we took these questions very, very seriously over the course of this weekend, just wrestling with the questions on Plato's own terms. And it was really at the end of that experience that you know, all along the way, is sort of think like, well, Christianity has answers to these questions. We believe that God became human. We believe that the one and the many are reconciled in the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is three persons, but also one, right? Like Christianity, it felt like a key that just unlocked everything to me. But it was thinking about the questions for so long with Plato and realizing he asked questions as well as anyone, and he couldn't think his way into the answers, what he needed was a God who came down, who actually became incarnate in Jesus Christ. And once that happens, the, you know, it feels satisfying in a way, but it only feels satisfying if you really feel the force of all of those questions. And so it was that experience that at the end of it, I thought, well, I'm, I'm really done here. I was raised in a Christian home. I think I was a Christian before that, but it solidified it for me in a way that I thought there's really no going back. This thing is really really true all the way down. Yes. So you can feel it to your soul. Okay. So then take that. Is, is the reason why they say Christianity is a mile wide and an inch deep, it's because we don't struggle well with the questions? I think that's a big part of it. I mean, we, we, we have thin formation in a lot of our churches. We do not do a good job of helping people see the depth, the mystery, the astonishing power of Christian doctrine, Christian theology, Christian's understanding of the world. The And I think like if you think about catechesis, so some people who are listening might have been through a process of being catechized. If they attended, for instance, the Reformed Church, you know, the churches of the Reformation have these catecheses where there's a question and then they had to learn, like a child would learn an answer to them. What that's doing is it's helping people think very deeply through answers, but it's also learning, helping people learn to ask questions, to understand what the answers are answers to. And I think if you un- want to understand how Christianity, this this very tiny Middle Eastern religion, became the sort of thing that within 350, 400 years of ex- existence had gone all around the world, you really have to understand what are the questions that Christianity is the answer 
two. And the more you think about those questions, the more astonishing Christian doctrine seems, the more exciting it is, the more invigorating it is, and the deeper people will go into it. So I do think that spending a lot of time with questions does invigorate people's understanding of the faith. But it also get, takes you to some scary places because when you go to the sovereignty of God and you start to look at that from a scriptural perspective and see how many things, or take the hypostatic union, Jesus, fully God, fully man. How does that work? I don't understand it. He's not just 50-50. He's 100%, 100%. That invades my mind. You know, you think of time and from the eternal perspective, you think of God not having past and future. He just is. And that starts showing me how, how small I am and how insignificant I am. And then it shows me how wonderful he is to have the grace to, to call me and to save me. So uh, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a question in there somewhere, Matt. <laughs> Answer it. No, I— I think I think that's exactly right in terms of you framed it as like how does this work? Uh, one of the questions that I love the most in all of Scripture is Mary's question to the angel when the angel comes to her and says, "You are going to bear the Messiah." Right? She hears that word and she responds to it by saying, "How will these things be? For I have not known a man." Which is just a wonderful question. It's the the exact sort of question that I want people to ask about the faith. These, this thing is so confusing. It's so perplexing in so many ways. It's such a strange religion that we believe that if we're not like Mary who asks, how are these things? How will these things be? We're not actually fully embracing the faith as has been revealed to us. Mary in that moment is the quintessential theologian, right? She's, she's, thinking really deeply. And she's thinking because her life depends upon it, right? She's going to bear the Messiah. This word, like she's not doubting. It's how will these things be? She thinks that what the angel has said to her is going to come true. So there's not a hint of doubt there, but she's going to be the one who goes through labor, who brings this child from her womb. Like the stakes are really high for her. And it's those stakes that prompt her to seek understanding about what she has received. And I think if we realize the stakes of the Christian faith, I think, and we realize how wonderful it is, then we can ask over and over in all these different areas, how are these things? How will these things be? We can ask that with joy and freedom and without fear in the way that Mary does. Yes. Okay, that same question that was asked by the other the other fellow, John the Baptist dad, it was Zechariah, yeah. wasn't it? Okay, yeah. I always forget his name. Yeah. Well, uh, so he asked the same kind of question, but there, there it sounds like you're saying there was a smidgen of doubt in there or unbelief? Yeah, Zechariah's question is a little bit different. He... You know, it's there's a hint of doubt in the way in which Zechariah puts his question to the angel. It's it's basically like, you know, will this thing come about? Um, and he gets punished for it because of all people who should believe the angel. Zechariah is that person. He's the high priest, right? Like he is in the holy place. And when the angel comes to him, he certainly knows that there's a Messiah. He should not be skeptical about 
what will happen there. But he is. If you look at the form of the text there, it's a little bit, yes. there's a little bit of a hint of skepticism. And I think that that's, that's like, it's how can I be sure of this is mm. the way in which he words it. And that's, that's just, you know, that's not quite the right question to ask if an angel comes to you, right? Like if an angel comes to you and says, <laughs> this is going to happen, it's not like, are, am I, are we sure we can trust you? Like, can I really trust you? That's not Mary's question. She trusts the angel. It's how is this going to happen? Like, like, tell me, I need some details here. Um, yeah. And I think that that's the right sort of question. <laughs> There's so many. Now I'm thinking of all of the different people in the Bible who asked questions of each yeah. year, one character to another. You, you think of Ananias. So Saul is going down, breathing out threats, and he's struck on the way to Damascus. Well, Ananias doesn't know any of this. And God says, you go over to Straight Street and do this. And there's, and, and Ananias is almost you know, like calling a timeout, you know, walking to the mound <laughs> saying, yeah. hey, hey, don't you, wait, come on, what? This, this, that can't be, no. And God was very kind to him to say, yeah, yeah, you know, your, your fear, I know who I'm talking about. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my sake because I've chosen mm -hmm. him. So that mm -hmm. there is a, it sounds like there's a time there's a posture there's with Mary it was tell tell me can you tell me more about what's going to happen here and and you're mm -hmm. almost an inviting that na a nature to it whereas Zachariah is like you're kidding me <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. that kind of thing right yeah that's right so one of my favorite questions in all of the Bible is uh Thomas's question that he puts to Jesus um which is how shall we know the way, right? It comes right before uh, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. And it's, it's this astonishing moment in John 14 where Jesus has said, basically, I'm going away. You know, like, I'm going to leave you, and you know the way that I'm going, right? And Thomas, you can just imagine Thomas, who gets such a bad rap. He looks around the room and is like, I don't. I don't actually know the way. Uh, he says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Right after Jesus has just said, you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas is the only person who puts this question to Jesus. And it, it's like he wants to be so clear on where Jesus is going because he just wants to follow him. He really wants to know. It's a quintessential, quote unquote, dumb question right? It's not actually a dumb question. It's really important that we know the way to follow Jesus. And out of that, Jesus's answer is, of course, one of the most loved Bible verses of all time. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, right? And that's prompted by Thomas's very, very simple question saying, I don't know the way. Where's the way? Tell us how, how we can follow you. And he's the only disciple to do it. And you just imagine everyone else in the room has the exact same question, yes. but none of them have Thomas's spirit. None of them are willing to say, actually, I'm, I'm willing to ask what seems like a really obvious question because I don't actually know the answer to it, even though Jesus has just told me I know the answer to it. Yes. And that's like that's a disposition of questioning that I also think is really valuable to cultivate. At the end of the day, I think there are good questions, there are bad questions, but Jesus wants us to start with the questions that we have, no matter how difficult or how simple they seem. 
The the other question, and folks, I've got to open the phone lines. I'm just having so much fun here to, with Matt. Call into questions is our featured resource today. Um, this is this is worth your time to think well about the questions. My favorite question in the New Testament is when Jesus is calls Bartimaeus, the blind guy standing by the road, and and Bartimaeus mm. makes his way over, and you know you're looking. You're here's the here's the God of the universe looking into the face of a man who can't see. He knows exactly what Bartimaeus wants, but he asks the question anyway, and basically it is, what would you what do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus. Yeah. Of course, of course yeah. he wants to be healed. Of course, but he makes Bartimaeus answer him and he says, Rabbi or Lord, I want to see. And mm-hmm. that question, you know, I I've thought of that question with me. You know, if I'm if Jesus is standing on the road and I run up to him and he asks me, what do you want me to do for you? How how would I answer that question to me today? And what yeah. is the deep the deeper thing that Bartimaeus needed was not just to see uh with physically, but he needed to see who Jesus really was and and receive that forgiveness as well as the healing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's a wonderful question. There's a, a version of it that happens at the pool of Bethes- uh, Bethesda in John 5 as well, where a man has been at the pool for many years. He's lame. And Jesus comes up to him and says, you know, do you want to be made well? <laughs> Yeah. Which you just think like, Duh. well, <laughs> obviously, but Jesus himself is willing to ask what seem like, quote unquote, dumb questions, right? Yes. Because it's yes. not necessarily the case that we all want to be made well. Some of us become so comfortable with our vices, our sins, that actually like the thought of losing them is very hard for us. And so Jesus' question, do we want to be made well, forces us to ask ourselves, is that something that we want? Another one, and we'll go to this when we come back. When Jesus was 12 years old, he asked this question of his parents, this duh. And I'll tell you what that is. Here's our number, 877-548-3675. More straight ahead on Moody Radio. We're talking about questions today at the back fence. Are we are we comfortable with the questions in today's world? Asking them of others, asking of ourselves. One of the great questions in our culture is when does life begin? At what point does a human being become a human being? Now that question is not welcomed by those who advocate abortion on demand, or they simply answer it quickly and they will say, uh, at birth. But for some, that is not a a theoretical question. It's not an intellectual exercise. It's crisis. Because right now that woman is trying to decide whether to have an abortion or not. I've been telling you about CareNet. There are people waiting for the phone to ring right now at the National Pregnancy Decision Line. Pregnancy decision coaches are ready to give immediate life-affirming counsel and pregnancy center referrals 
to women and men who are considering abortion. They've talked, there was a woman in an abortion clinic bathroom who said, I don't want to do this. And they were able to get her the help that she needed. And not just to save the baby and then move on. They call it pro-abundant life at CareNet for a reason. Find out more about them. Click the green CareNet button. You probably have not heard of them before. Uh, you, You may not have. If you have, I'm glad. If you're hearing about them for the first time, I'm glad too. Click CareNet when you go to chrisfabrylive.org, chrisfabrylive.org. I am enamored with uh, Matt's book. We have it linked, Called Into Questions, Cultivating the Love of Learning Within the Life of Faith. And uh, you can find out more about Matt there, Dr. Matthew Lee Anderson. The scripture that I was talking about is in Luke the end of uh, chapter two, after three days, Mary and Joseph, the parent, his Jesus' parents, found him in the temple complex, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard him, Jesus, were astounded at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. <laughs> and it just makes me laugh when Jesus says, why were you searching for me? <laughs> and if you just stop right there, you could say, "This, there's something about this kid. Why, what do you mean, why are you searching for me? They've been, you've been missing for three days. But the rest of it is, didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. I find that just fascinating. Don't you, Matt? Yeah, it's a it's a really wonderful section. You know, it ends again with a nod to Mary, where it says his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. You know, she she recognizes there's something about Jesus that she doesn't understand. And what she does is she holds it in her heart and she contemplates it. She thinks about it. She just muses about it and gives it time. And I think that there's something about like what Jesus does in terms of putting a question to his parents, it's very perplexing, right? This is not the sort of thing that an ordinary 12-year-old does. And, it, you know, the scripture is very clear. He goes back to Nazareth with, with them and is submissive to them. So he returns to his appropriate role as a child, as someone who's still under their care and authority. But there's a glimpse here that he's he's no ordinary child. And, and his mother particularly is the one who stores this up in her heart and contemplates it and thinks on it. And you can imagine her for the next 21 years-ish, you know, before Christ dies on the cross, thinking about this sort of episode and just ruminating on it and anticipating in certain respects what the meaning of this type of event this type of occasion was and that i think is a wonderful thing to do with our questions we just roll them around in the back of our minds and store them up and think on them and return to them occasionally and try to gain new insight into them and so on so i think mary is in this respect again a kind of model model thinker for us she's a great theologian i uh i wrote this question down and it was kind of the main reason i wanted to have you on today so let me let me throw this to you now uh having said that i think we in the church don't do well with questions and maybe i'm i'm not speaking about the church i'm speaking about myself <laughs> because in many ways questions can trigger fear inside of us 
or they can trigger inquisitiveness, you know, you get into that idea of let, let's think well about this. So what does it mean for my first reaction to a question that comes? And I always think of it, you know, because I have a lot of kids, you know, it's, dad, I don't believe this religion anymore, this Christianity religion anymore because of whatever. And I've, if I feel so threatened by that, that I don't engage or that I come, I volley something back. Well, you know, what I've taught you all the time and, and, you know, go down that road. If my first reaction to the, the questions that come to me is fear, then I focus on myself and I focus on my agenda and what's going to happen in eternity with you and et cetera. You know, we, I go down that road and I, I, I want to have the answer that turns this son or daughter around to the truth, you know, rather than staying right there and saying, well, tell me more about that. <laughs> you know, it takes, it takes a, a lack of, eh, not a lack of fear. I think we can have fear, but it almost takes a faith that says, I'm okay with what's happening right now in this question that somebody that I care about is posing to me or statement. And so I need the faith to to engage well, which I think is what you're really talking about. Is that true? Yeah, that's right. I think those fears that people have are often for the sake of of others and others that we're responsible to. I think it's harder, you know, like I've, I have a lot of education, more education than most people. Um, and I've been very fortunate to have that. But one of the downside risks of it is it's very easy when people ask me questions to default to having answers because ostensibly that's what I've been trained to do. And it's not just that I've been trained to do it. It's that my reputation my own identity, my own sort of position hangs on me knowing the answers to some of these questions. And that's really terrifying because if someone comes and asks me a question that I don't know the answer to, then my sense of identity, my who I am is suddenly at stake and it feels like a threat. And there's all sorts of ways in which I think you're right. Parents, when their children come and ask them questions, feel something similar and I think that the, you know, what you say about having a faith that allows the freedom, people the freedom to ask some of these questions, I think that that stems from knowing that God asks us questions and being familiar with that as a process, right? God questions us. And he puts us in questioning us in positions where we don't know the answers. I think a lot about Job, right? Job spends a lot of time questioning God. A lot of bad things have happened to Job. And, you know, he, he laments his losses and he puts his questions to God. And at the end of the book of Job, God turns the tables and says, you had questions for me, and now I have some questions for you. Were you there when I formed the stars with my hands? And the answer to that question is very manifestly no. And in that process of being questioned by God, God is reminding Job that he's God and Job is not. 
and reminding Job of, in one respect, his insignificance, that the world is not his, that he doesn't control it, that he's not the author of his own story, that God is the one who is sovereign over all. And that, ironically, it paradoxically frees Job to, to ask questions. Job hasn't done anything wrong. God makes that very clear. But it also means that Job doesn't have to be afraid about what happens. He doesn't have to be afraid for his future. And I think that when it comes to questions that unsettle us and disturb us, we have to remember that God has asked us harder questions yet. And he's asked our children harder questions yet. He's asked those whom we love hard questions and that they are and we are in God's hands. And so we can be free without fear in those respects. Is that true with with those that we love, you know, a sibling, even a parent, you know, who's not a believer and asks you or the children that you have when they come to you? If, if you default to fear, you're not going to relate well to them. So, so you're, so what do you do with the fear that you have? Yeah, I think that with the fear, I want to be able to see the question as it's a question. And if someone comes with me to me with a question that's disturbing, then I think I really want to try to cultivate a mindset like Mary's. Tell me more. How is this? Like what's behind this question? Uh, what's driving it? Maybe there is really something here that I need to ask questions about myself. And I don't need to be afraid because I'm confident that God holds me and God holds this person. But I think like being able to invert invert the question in one way, and in, in terms of like if it's hostile, thinking, well, it might be hostile, but it might just be a question that we have to ask. And just embracing the question as a question. That's kind of a non-answer, Chris. I don't know. No, I don't know. That's, it's, it's a hard no, no. problem. It's really, it's really good. And it's exhibited. It, I, I told you before we went on, I watched a video of you and the questioner, the interviewer on the podcast said that, that uh, there was a, a person who came to his door and uh, considered this a kind of an offshoot of Christianity, a cult and had a conversation. He was starting to debate, you know, sp- uh, sp- spiritual things from a biblical perspective. And then he simply asked, so you didn't always used to be, you know, a member of this religion. What what turned you on to this? You know, why'd you choose this? Yeah. And she started to talk about her brother dying and the struggle that he had. And he understood then that she really... Uh, em- embrace this other religion because of their belief in annihilationism and that he was not going to suffer, you know, for eternity. And he said, when I understood, when I got that, it's like we got to the humanity of what the conversation was about. It was no longer about, you know, what we were arguing about. It was about that. And that's where a good question will take you. Uh, Dr. Matt is with us today. Matthew Lee Anderson, the author of Called Into Questions, our featured resource at chrisfabrylive.org. Dr. Matt Anderson has written Called Into Questions, Cultivating the Love of Learning Within the Life of Faith. It's a really, really good book that'll make you think And maybe the best thing that could come from it or just listening to this conversation is to 
become comfortable with what you're not comfortable with, and that is the question that comes that you don't know the answer to, or you feel like you have to answer it. You have to fix the the problem of the the other person with the answer to that question. Um, and I I think I want to read the Rilke quote. You uh, letters to, anybody who quotes letters to a young poet, I, I read. Uh, Rilke says, "You're so young, so far from any beginning." I should like to ask you, dear sir, as well as I can, to show patience toward everything in your heart that has not been resolved and to try to cherish the questions themselves, like sealed rooms and books written in a language that is very foreign. Do not hunt for the answers just now. They cannot be given to you because you cannot live them. What matters is that you live everything, and you must now live the questions." One day, perhaps, you will gradually and imperceptibly live your way into the answer. So you make a point to to emphasize, live the questions, enter into them, allow them to enter into us. So my question to you is, what's that look like? What, What is this life that you're pushing us to live? Yeah, this is a hard question for me to ask. I My friends give me a hard time because I don't like application in sermons and uh, I don't like the, like it in my own books either. I like, to, I like people to think and then sort of reimagine their own lives. I do think that, you know, the, the part that you read from Rilke, there's so much to it in terms of patience and time and giving time to these questions. And that's, that's where I would start. If you want to ask better questions, you have to give what you're thinking about time. You have to roll, allow the question to roll around in your mind, to to marinate in it, to examine the, the, the topic or the question from a variety of different angles. And so I think, you know, I actually don't think it takes very long to have a really robust, rich intellectual life. I think it's the sort of thing that people could do in an hour or two of their lives a day. Uh, I think that they might have to do things like quit watching Netflix and streaming television, which I don't think is conducive to an environment of questioning. I think that they might have to take up reading as a spiritual practice and, and read different types of books, books that challenge them, books that prompt them to think of deeper questions. But I think that that really it begins with time and giving time to our intellectual lives as a practice of loving God and loving the world that he has placed us in. I think the other thing that I would say is, uh, with apologies for a long answer, is just shifting where we direct our attention. There's so much about the world that's so fascinating. The questions, good questions arise. They're embedded in the world around us. If we would but wake up and pay attention. And mostly that means turning off things like social media. It means getting away from our smartphones. It means interacting with our neighbors and listening to them and hearing what they're interested in and trying to encounter questions through people. And so time and redirecting our attention, I think, are two of the main things that we need to do. We could talk a lot about community as well and thinking with others and for others. I think that's that's really important. Um, but that's where I would start. That's really good. 
and it it kind of encapsulates what the book is is calling us, wooing us, you know, wooing us for mm. a deeper kind of life than the shallow mm-hmm. one. Where I, where it hits me often is if I meet somebody who I know is uh, votes differently <laughs> than I do, or you know, likes a politician that I don't like, or uh, what they think about Israel and Palestine and what's going on there. If you're different, then I, I very easily can put you into a different category, and I can be friends, friendly with you, and smile and and do whatever we're doing. But I'm not going to go any further with you. But a question mm-hmm. then, a questioning life that you're talking about is, you say, the questioning life is responsive and responsible to God. In questioning, we direct our attention outward away from ourselves toward another who can give us an answer. So in that situation, the best thing I can do is ask, so why why do you vote that way? Or why do you think that mm-hmm. way about Israel? Or what? just to ask that question to open the gate rather than pigeonholing them someplace is an exercise. It's risky because I'm going to have to listen, but it's also mm-hmm. eye-opening for what they might say to me. Yeah, that's right. And you might discover that you have more in common than you think and that you have surprising things in common. Uh, I think that's one of the values of talking with one another and questioning one another is you're, you're looking for surprising points of commonality. Now, do I think that there are some differences that might be insurmountable where you just end up saying, well, we're going to have to, quote, agree to disagree? I think that, yes, there are points where it's like we just we've worked through all the reasons we've listened to one another and we just see this one very differently. But saying that at the end of a long conversation where you've worked through the reasons and you've discovered that the reasons that they have for their positions are rooted in uh, parts of their lives that you didn't know, give you points of commonality that you didn't have before. And I think that that's really essential for good conversations. And that is the scariest thing. When there's somebody that I disagree with about, you know, the big issue, these are really, really big issues. And I come to in a conversation with them and good questions that both of us ask, I realize I kind of like you. <laughs> I, I really, I really enjoy your company. Even if, if you're diametrically opposed to, you know, whatever this is, I value you because of the image of God in you and in me, and we've connected. And that's scary because I like to live in this bifurcated world. You know, my enemies are over here and my friends are over here and don't mix. And I find that so often I'm I'm a part of the enemy group (laughs) when I see myself really in the mirror. Okay, I'll stop right there. I can't say it highly enough, Matt. This is a is a great book to get us to think better to think well and to question well. And I thank you for writing it and uh, for submitting yourself to my questions today. (laughs) Thank you, Chris. It's been a real pleasure. And thank you for those kind words. Dr. Matthew Lee Anderson. You can find out more about him. Go to his website and see the link to our featured resource called Into Questions. It's going to, it'll make you think, but it's going to bring up other things, other questions that you have. I like the subtitle uses the word cultivating. That's what it's going to do. It's going to make you cultivate. It's going to make you ruminate. The cultivating the love of learning within the life of faith. Uh, find it at chrisfabrylive.org. Thanks for joining us at the back fence today. Chris Fabry Live is a production of Moody Radio, Ministry of Moody Bible Institute. <music>